Welcome to the Inclusive Education Project. I'm Vicki Brett. I'm Amanda Salohi. We're two civil rights lawyers on a mission to change the conversation about education, civil rights, and modern activism. Each week, we're going to explore new topics which are going to educate and empower others and give them a platform to enact change in education and level the playing field. Guys, we made it. It is 2020, a new decade. Happy New Year. Y2K 2.0 what? didn't happen. I'm just kidding. Is that what people were saying? <laughs> I don't know. Probably. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. I just remember so vividly everyone preparing so much for Y2K, and I just feel like... We're in the 20s. We're in the roaring 20s. The no, ro- we oh, yeah, yeah. Let's <laughs> but I mean, it kind that. of... Let's start that. We should. The second roaring... What could we call it? I mean, it's kind of good crazy to think, because... There are people alive that were born in the 20s. Are they, though? Yeah, they're like 100. Oh, are they? Oh, yeah, well, I guess yeah. that's true. I don't know. They could have been born in the late 20s, too, and they're like in their 90s. Oh, that's true. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. That is kind of your... weird. Well, my grandma's 92. What year was she born, then? Your grandma's 92? Yeah. Oh, Still rocking Audrey? her. Yeah. Oh. Still rocking her wine. That's the way to I mean, look, do I get it. that age, I'm going to have my wine, too. Whatever. What? <laughs> <laughs> but we have... So many amazing things planned for 2020. We are so excited. We're going to be launching this month our podcast live tour. Yes. yes. Which there will be more information on social media for how yeah, you can get tickets some, and get information. Yeah, we've alluded to it in December and teased um, it out. Teased it out. And, you know, this is just such an incredible journey for Amanda and I. You know, we are still attorneys. We still have very, very full caseloads. But <laughs> this you guys is, believe it or not, like so our supportive. pet project. This yeah, is not our, our day-to-day job. Listen, you've helped us get really great people. And one of those great people you're going to listen to right now, Tina Bryson, this actually coincides with a release of her book. And I think you She's guys, going on tour, too. Yeah, she's going on tour, too. And I think, you guys, it's the power of showing up. And such I, a great book. Yeah, we kind of went off a little bit. We're going to have her back on. But this is like we talk part about, one. Yeah, this is part one. But the science of the brain. So, yeah, you know, she studied with Dr. Dan Siegel. She has a Center for Connection, the Play Strong Institute. And she just, I love the way that her mind works. It's the why behind things. So mm-hmm. we talk a lot about the threat state that we see kiddos. So, you know, a kid very, very young is tantruming. Okay, you telling them, like, calm down or, you know, trying to get them to listen to you is just, like, not going to happen. They need to feel their yeah. feelings. And we quickly went down a rabbit hole oh, of discipline. Totally. <laughs> which is fascinating. But, like, her perspective and her teachings, like, mm-hmm. can go so far with how she talks about like discipline the whole meaning behind it should be to teach Mm -hmm. and the way that we use discipline in the united states is Mm -hmm. not that at all it's it's punitive exactly Mm -hmm. and it's so counterintuitive and so we learned so much from her and the perspectives of like i know that you know in my next like discipline case i mean i'm just gonna I mean, we try as much as we can to, like, learn and use research. Because, like, in our cases, because special ed law is, like, so creative, we don't have to, like, use just case law. Like, we really can use, like, the research and the science behind things, but, like, why it should be done a certain way. So, like, I can't wait There's to... There's so much yeah. out there. And yeah. really, we uh, and it's selfishly people like her use... that are sharing that knowledge. <laughs> I've been using this platform to yes. get some FaceTime with these people. So we're really excited. 
Tina Bryson was an amazing guest. This is going to be a part one where we've scheduled part two to coincide. But if you guys want to check out and get her book, the power of showing up book.com is, oh, and you can get it anywhere, you know, Amazon, Audible, like it's available now. We yeah. guys, you're going to thoroughly enjoy our conversation. I know that we did. And yeah, stay tuned for all the cool stuff that we're doing mm-hmm. in 2020. Happy New Year. Hi, Tina Bryson. Thank you so much for coming on to our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I can't wait to visit with y'all about kids and how we think about them and how we respond to them with the brain in mind. Well, we're so excited. You're such a great resource for our listeners. You know, we have such a, a wide variety of listeners, but you know, a big portion is parents. And so we're so excited for you to be able to, you know, sh- share to them, you know, your expertise and all the amazing information. And you, have. you guys might have seen Tina. She's been on Good Morning America, obviously Huffington Post. You've done so many media appearances and yeah this is like so big for us so thank you again (laughs) but Tina so how'd you get here (laughs) I've like so I haven't had my caffeine yet I apologize no I was teaching so like I had gotten my undergraduate degree to be a high school English teacher and I did that for a little while and then I wanted to have they really wanted to do and my husband is an English professor we ended up moving to where my family and working as a professor and he was like we can't afford to live here you have got to go to work and so I said okay well if I'm gonna work I want to teach but I want to teach at the university level so kids in summer and over Christmas for long periods of time and all of that and so I decided to get a PhD in social work I already had my master's in social work and in the process of that I decided I wasn't going to become a professor or a researcher because I fell in love with this future person neurobiology. And when I started looking at the science of how the brain and the mind and the relationships that we have all influence each other and how much brain changes from our relational experiences, I thought this is incredible and people have to know about this. And the more I learned about the brain and the nervous system, the more I started realizing how so much of how we see kids' behaviors is completely off and how much of the way we typically respond to kids, especially when they're struggling, especially when they have challenges, is completely counterproductive and sometimes even does harm. And so as I learned about this stuff, I said, oh my gosh, I have to share this with as many people as possible. And as I was learning about this, I thought, gosh, I really know how to help parents and kids in a way that I don't see other people doing it. And so in the process of that, I really started, I studied with Dan Siegel for 10 years and learned all about the science while I finished my PhD. And I kept having babies while I was <laughs> I have three boys who are now 19, 16, and 13. Oh and gosh. yeah, and so like I work in a school part-time as the child development specialist school counselor. And then four years ago, my husband and I started a interdisciplinary clinical practice because so many kids have are complex. And a lot of kids, it's not like you know, they have a lot going on and just they see a, you know, a psychotherapist one hour a week and they might see an occupational therapist and they also need neuropsych testing and their parents need couples counseling because it's so stressful. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up pulling together this place called the Center for Connection. 
connection because where I think that so many of us go wrong, both in school, even in intervention psychotherapy kinds of approaches, is that we are focusing so much on the behaviors and on the symptoms, and we're not peeling the layers back far enough to look at the cause of the symptoms. So sometimes our interventions are really not the right ones, Mm -hmm. you know? So I felt like I'm so proud of, you know, the education got and the training got, but I saw how limited it was from a mental health perspective alone. So like, for instance, I have a kid who really bright, but struggling in school, some behavioral rage kind of issues. The parents would come to me as the therapist and say, Hey, I think my kid has an anger rage issue. Mm -hmm. But as I began to really peel back the layers and say, why is this kid's nervous system in a threat state all the time, even when he's in a safe environment? What's that about? And as I begin to peel the lid further, I started looking at, huh, this kid is really bright and I'm looking at some things here that make me wonder about his processing speed. I'm wondering his processing Mm. speed is significantly lower than some of his other cognitive abilities. And as I got further into it, other kids, I would see, oh my gosh, I think there's a sensory challenge here that's flooding their nervous. So I felt like I needed a team of specialists to collaborate with to really truly peel the layers back. And so anyway, as I was learning all of this stuff, I was like, I have to share it. And then I started sharing it with parents and it was resonating. And then I went to Dan Siegel and I was like, we should write a book. And I don't know how it happened from there. But I think it resonates with people because so many of our old traditional models of how we do things don't often work or they don't feel right to parents. So I think having a better understanding of the brain and the nervous system can be really, really helpful as we really try to effectively support kids in building skills and thriving. And I think it doesn't work for a lot of parents. You know, we have the internet and sometimes you can go down a rabbit hole, but this information is so easily accessible to them now, right? And so then they start thinking about those old ways and that's just how we've done it. You know, that's, I recently had a baby, well, not so recently, she's 11 months, but it feels like yesterday. And that must have been such a fascinating experiment for you, having your boys and watching their brain development while you're studying that. I'm having a fun time doing that. By no means an expert like you. But I think, you know, the old way of doing things just, it doesn't work because we have so much more information. And I think that parents can readily, you know, before it was passing down generations and generations of advice. This is what you do for a colicky baby, you know. Oh, they're teething? A little bit of whiskey on the gums. This is the way that our family has always done it yeah. and so therefore yeah. because you turned out fine it must be fine right but. right right so, yeah and I think that happens a lot of times like when I'm having like IEP or SST meetings with parents you know who, their kid is super struggling and you yeah. know it's pretty apparent to the learning self that this kid probably has some sort of underlying reading-based, language-based challenge. And, you know, oftentimes a parent will be like, I was just like that as a kid and I turned out fine, so why would we go and label them? And I'm like, yeah, but think about all the struggle you had that you could keep your kid from having and you know so many some of the time kids have a narrative about their struggle that they're stupid and they're in fact not you know all of us have strengths and weaknesses in our brain they're in fact often really bright and they have this other challenge and so sometimes really getting to the bottom of it can 
public, just the information about what's going on is an intervention in and of yeah. itself because yeah. it changes the narrative. Absolutely. So you were talking about the way that we react to kids when they're struggling and how there's different ways and better ways that we can do it. Could you give us an example of maybe a way that people typically react to a child when they're struggling that's not the best way and what's a better way? Yeah, I think it starts with this foundation, and that'll give a story to give an example. It starts with this foundation of getting clear on what discipline really is. And most of us as teachers or as parents, our discipline philosophy is more like the fly by the seat of the pants method, which is like we come up with whatever response comes to us in the moment, like Mm -hmm. typically based on our own level of reactivity or calm, depending on where we are, right? And we often don't have a guiding philosophy. And when we really look at what the purpose and goal of discipline is, or when we have to intervene when a kid is acting in ways that are not working for them or for other people, to remember that the point of it is to help the child become a self-disciplined person that can regulate themselves and make good decisions and can handle themselves well on their own. That's the end goal. Mm -hmm. And so what we really try to do is get back to the point and purpose of discipline, which is teaching. That's actually what the original meaning of the word is, to teach. And if we can just hold that every discipline moment is a teaching or skill building moment. That can actually change a lot of how we see the situation. So lots of times we see a moment as a kid being a brat on purpose or they're doing this to get to me. And of course, there are moments that that, you know, those certainly can happen as part of the range of experience. But a lot of times, I think the biggest mistake we make is that a child's bad behavior is because of a willful choice that they're making each and every time. And that's just not true when we look at how the brain and the nervous system work. So let's just get really basic here and say that the brain is either in a reactive mode or it's in a receptive mode. In our book, The Yes Brain, we'd call this the yes brain or the no brain, or in The Whole Brain Child, we call it an integrated brain versus a dysregulated or disintegrated brain. But it's this idea that our nervous system has these different states of arousal. So we can be in a really you know, nice and alert and calm state of arousal where we can learn really easily and we are making decisions. But we can also go into what we would call that the green zone. We could also go into the red zone where we're in a state of hyper arousal and our heart's beating fast and our muscles are tight and we're really just focused on sort of the fight, flight, freeze, survival. And the opposite of that would be like the blue zone where the nervous system is really in too low of a state of arousal where we're kind of in more of a collapse or a shutdown kind of state. And when we're in this green zone, we're receptive. This is where we can learn and this is where we can make decisions and be problem solvers and listen very well and all of these things. But if we're in a more reactive state, either in the red zone or in the blue zone, so kind of acting out or shutting down, we actually are not receptive to learning at all. We can't learn when we're in those states and we are not making decisions. Our survival kind of instincts are taking over because there's this thing called neuroception, which is not something we think about. It's basically where our kind of lower structures of our brain and our body decide if something is safe or threatening. So if our neuroception is saying danger, threat, or the stress levels have gotten so high, we go into these heightened stress states. Stress is good as long as it's the right amount of stress. But when we go into states where we're in this kind of toxic stress, we can go into these reactive states where we can't make decisions, we can't problem solve. And Stephen Porges, who is the guy who created something called polyvagal theory, which I'm fascinated with, talks about how actually when we go into these threat states, 
our social engagement circuitry turns off. So meaning the inner ear muscle actually changes so it's harder to hear the human voice. We can't make eye contact and really take visual information. So basically auditory and visual processing kind of turn off except focused around the threat. So when kids are in these red zone or blue zone moments, not only are they not making a willful choice, so then it's funny that we might be punitive and send them to higher states of stress, but also they just can't learn those moments. So those are not really great discipline moments. So where we really get things wrong is a kid might do something that they can't help because it's a stress risk. And then we punish them and throw consequences at them and message, gosh, I can't have, so let me tell, I'll just tell a story. Okay, so I'm in a preschool classroom. There's this really bright little boy. He's about four years old and he's a kid who runs really anxious and he's coloring a picture for his mom. His teacher gives him a prompt. Hey, it's time to line up. He goes, he continues to color his picture. She gives him another prompt. It's time for recess. It's time for you to put your picture away. He doesn't do it. So she goes over and yanks the crayon out of his hand. Oh my gosh. He flips out. He goes from a receptive state into a reactive state, a stress response, mm-hmm. and he hits the teacher. So then he gets sent to the office. And by the time I get to him, he's completely dysregulated. And he's hilarious, actually, super bright. I mean, not hilarious in that I'm enjoying his dysregulation, but he had this revenge plan for her. That oh, was, wow. Was a, yeah, he was a really creative, smart kid. It was like a really long-term plan with some magical thinking. So he was <laughs> like, I'm going to turn the teacher into a seed, and then I'm going to plant her, and then she's going to grow into a tree, and then I'm going to chop her down, oh. and then I'm going to put her in a wood chipper, and then I'm going to shoot the wood chips on the scent, my and God. I'm going to get a steamroller. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so, right. and, you know, the teacher experienced this as, yeah, exactly. The teacher experienced this as threatening behavior right and I'm thinking okay this is a stress response he's really you know unhappy right now right. but she was like you know you can't act that way and this is going to be your consequence he couldn't learn any of that and he got in trouble so what happened is this kid had an experience of okay I have a stress response and I can't help it and instead of helping so basically he's like I had a stress response I couldn't help it and this was a kid who had some rigidity and some other things going on and then he's like and I got in trouble so that actually increases his anxiety And it actually makes things worse over time. The behaviors got worse and worse and worse. Had instead, this kid had had an experience where he's like, oh, sometimes I have really big feelings and I can't totally control it all the times, but someone helps me. Mm-hmm. That would be a completely different experience. Now, I'm not saying we are permissive and we tolerate behaviors, but what happens is we then say, okay, this kid communicated something. Behaviors, communication. He basically said, hey, guys, I have a really hard time navigating transitions. And particularly when I'm working on something that feels really special to me because it's for my mom and you take it away from me, like that feels really threatening to me. And so I need some skills managing my own big feelings. Like, right. So his behavior communicated that. So instead of punishing him, we start brainstorming and saying, okay, how can we give this kid repeated experiences that widen his window of tolerance so that he can tolerate challenges with skills? And so how do we build those in? And so this is sort of a way that we need to rethink this. So what I needed to do in the moment and in the name of discipline and even, you know, holding kids accountable for their behaviors because they don't even feel empathy until they get back into that green zone and they can't take responsibility and think about how to problem solve differently next time. They can't even have that reflective dialogue in that state. So the first thing that needs to happen when kids are in really reactive states is actually connection. 
at our worst, that's when we most need connection. And this Mm -hmm. is based on a lot of attachment needs. So what I needed to do with this kid was to help basically kind of turn down the dial of his nervous system arousal with a lot of empathy and listening and slowing down, you know, what I was doing. I actually below eye level with an empathic look on my face. I said, you're so angry. That was really upsetting that that happened, you know, and just really kind of slowed things down and connected with him. And after a few minutes, you know, he could back to that green zone and then we could talk about what happened and what he could do differently next time and that kind of thing. That's so good to know. And I think that's something that like we see in the school setting so much. I mean, I think it kind of goes both to at home and, and school, but I mean, we see discipline happening so often in school that it's not a determinant for students, for kids, I think because of everything that you just explained and we're not. Yeah. So I think that's, it's so useful. And I, you know, we see on the extreme when kids are dealing with disciplinary issues where it leads to expen- expulsions and yeah. suspensions yeah. and even having the school resource officer come. We, you know, we get a number of cases where students who are, you know, as young as seven are, are getting put in handcuffs yeah. and taken because of something that they usually cannot control. And yet we're disciplining right. them in this way and it's not teaching them. So I I love the idea of using discipline as a teaching moment. And do you ever, so you do go to IEP meetings with families. Is this the kind of strategies that you can help provide to IEP teams kind of teaching this? Yeah. And the school where I work is an independent school. I've certainly been to lots of IEPs as the child's therapist. But in my role at the school where I work, you know, we're, we call them student support team meetings. But it's essentially the same kind of thing. But the first thing we do when we sit around the table, you know, oftentimes parents are very upset that their kid is, you know, having these challenges and they're afraid and they may be in reactive states themselves. So the first thing I always start with is that same, you know, just Dan and I, Dan Siegel, my co-author and I, we talk a lot about the idea of connect and redirect. And not only does it feel good to be able to do that with someone, like especially with our own kid, but it's so much more effective. It just works better because you can down-regulate people's stress states so that it can be more effective. So the first thing I start with is to say, you know, We've got lots of experts in this room, but the most important experts in this room are you as the parents. You are the expert on your kid and you are part of the team. And this is not going to be the kind of thing where a bunch of experts tell you what you need to do with your kid. We want to partner together. Your kid is not in trouble. We're not here to talk about disciplinary strategies. We're here because your child, we really believe that kids do well when they can. And your kid is communicating that something is too hard. Something is too challenging and they need some support. And so our job is to work together to provide the supports and the skill building to help your kid thrive. And that's kind of the speech I give to open things up. And I think it immediately provides a sense of everyone on the same page, everyone working toward the goal. And it's really important that we communicate to parents like, we care about your kid. We're Mm -hmm. here for your kid. This is not us versus your family. I think that piece of connection is so important. Again, the parents in a reception state so that they can really be listening and taking this in. And, you know, as parents, when our kids are struggling, and particularly when our kids seem like they're getting in trouble or we're worried that there is a diagnosis or something going on, it's terrifying. And, you know, particularly if we have our own history of having those kinds of struggles. I think it brings back a lot of trauma for parents it that does. encountered that um, in the past. And then they're seeing themselves in their child. And like you had said earlier, you know, 
Oh, but I went through it and I was fine. But they almost forgot the struggle that they went through, right? They're on the other side. They're through the tunnel and they're looking back and they're like, oh, well, but I'm here, right? And I think that that's very difficult for a lot of parents. Typically, we see parents in that reactive state. They are upset when they get to us most of the time, not all the time. That's right. You know, when I was kind of green doing this and I would feel a parent being really resistant to getting their kid tested or getting their kid the kind of interventions they needed and I you know sometimes you know the curse of knowledge is knowing like if this kid doesn't get early intervention if they don't get OT Mm -hmm. before age eight Mm -hmm. it's going to be a bigger uphill you know so you know I would feel really mad sometimes at the parents because I cared so much about the kid and I felt like they were not taking care of their kid but when I had that kind of mentality it almost was worse because I felt like the parents didn't feel like I was on their side, right, you know, right, like right. even if, though I was being professional and I wasn't saying mm-hmm. that they could feel it. Mm-hmm. And so I think when I got a little bit more experienced and not that I don't still have those flickers of moments, you know, I, I feel tempted sometimes in my snarky self, which is a very big part of myself. <laughs> you know, I want to be like, yeah, you say you're fine, but actually look how rigid you are. So maybe you're not right, fine. You know, right. like, I want to say something like that, but really if I can get to a place to, okay. So my big thing with kids is like when they're struggling when they're reactive, my first job is to sit in a place of curiosity and Mm -hmm. to say, okay, I'm not going to make assumptions that this kid's being abroad. I'm not going to make assumptions like, you know, and I have to counter this because like, I'll ask a teacher, I'll say, what do you think's going on with this kid? Like he's clearly bright, but he's so oppositional. He's not doing any work for you. What do you think is going on? And the teacher will say, I think he's just lazy or I think Mm -hmm. he doesn't care. And there's Mm -hmm. all these characterological explanations. And so to help move the teacher to a place of curiosity, I'd be like, hmm, I wonder why he's not doing the work. I wonder what that's right. about for him. Because, gosh, he wouldn't want his friends to see him like running out of the classroom, acting kind of strange because he'd want his peer approval. So, hmm, I wonder what that's about. So, I really try to sit in a place of curiosity about the parents so that I can get to a place of compassion and say, okay, just like I want to say that kids are doing the best they can and it's my job to be curious and connect with them in that place, that's what I have to do with parents first right. before we even get to the kid, right? right. So, if I can come to a place of compassion and say, gosh, this feels really frightening to them. That makes me just have so much better because it's so stressful for the parent. And the more connection I can give to the parent, the more resources that parent has to give connection to their kid as well. Absolutely. So a lot of times in many of our cases, you know, we talk about the fact that, I mean, the law sets forth that discipline for manifestations of disabilities is, you know, not appropriate, not allowed for students who have disabilities, right? Because it's outside of their control. If they're having a behavior, they cannot be disciplined. They shouldn't be disciplined for that because it's not going to be a teachable moment. But from everything that you're saying, it's sounding to me like that really should be the case for all kids because when they're in that reactive state, it is. It's not necessarily because of a disability, but it's because of that state that it, it sometimes is out of their control. They're reacting to a stressor. And so maybe the need for discipline reform for all kids it maybe needs to be out there. What are your thoughts on that for you know the global scale of how we use discipline in schools as a whole? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Dan and I wrote a book called No Drama Discipline that talks a lot about these ideas. And 
I absolutely think that we need to rethink our whole discipline strategy because of this. So I'll give it. I'll give an example. So I was um, I was speaking in Texas, this huge school district there, and I had just given a talk about the idea that about these nervous system about red zone and how mm-hmm. you see a lot of acting out behaviors, and in the blue zone you see a lot of kids like shutting down and getting really quiet and pulling away and. You see oppositionality, what looks like oppositionality in both of them. In the red, you see lots of even disrespectful or right. maybe even aggressive behaviors. And and But when they're in those states, they cannot help it. It's basically like our fight, flight, freeze, faint mm-hmm. system that mm-hmm. take over. And so I had this teacher raise her hand and she said, gosh, everything you're saying makes me wonder about my discipline management strategy in my classroom. And I said, well, tell me about it. And she said, well, I have a clothespin system. And she said, funny enough, they all start off like with a green light and then there's a yellow light a red light. She said that each kid has a name on their clothespin. If they get a warning, it gets moved to yellow. If they get another warning, it gets moved to red. And then they get a note home or, you know, don't let them have recess. And I'm like, oh, the kids who don't get recess are the kids who need recess. Right, most, right. You're right. yourself. But anyway, I said, okay, so she said, well, what do you think? And I said, well, first of all, let's ask a couple of interesting questions. First is, is it the same kid or two whose clothespin you have to move most of the time? She said, yes. She said, there was one boy who I moved his clothespin so much this year that his name rubbed off, but we all knew that that was his clothespin. Mm -hmm. And I said, the rest of the kids, would they need the clothespin? Like if you, since you move them so rarely, would it be the kind of thing that if you just used proximity, if you just walked over to them and say, hey, I'm noticing you're not on task. And you just said a sentence like that, or I'm noticing you're you're being a little bit loud for your neighbors. If you said something like that, would they self-correct? And you wouldn't necessarily even need to move the clothespin. She said, yeah, that's true. And she said, I said, okay, so now let's go back to these two kids whose clothespin you moved the most, the one whose name rubbed off. Let's think about him. Was it for the same kinds of behaviors over and over? She said, yes. And I said, tell me about those. She said he was really impulsive. He was always mm-hmm. in people's space. He was mm-hmm. disrespectful of other people's space and materials. He moved his body around where he was intruding, you know, and he just had a, you know, a lot of big energy and big feelings. He got his feelings hurt really easily. He would really lash out at other kids. And, mm-hmm. and I said, okay, so forget everything I'm saying. If the same kid is having the same behaviors over and over and over, even after you've moved his clothespin and he's had all these consequences, it's not working. So right. Right. just based on efficacy, we need something new. The second thing is, how do his peers feel about him based on everything you just told me? And she's like, yeah, they annoy him. He's, you know, they really, I don't know that he even gets invited to birthday parties. And, and so I'm like, okay, he's getting a lot of negative consequences already. A lot right. of social consequences. Plus he gets in trouble with you. Plus he gets in trouble with his parents. Why in the hell would this kid keep doing these behaviors if he had a choice? Right. And I will, yeah. And I said, you know, I'll tell you, kids who are neurotypical typically will correct through mm-hmm. peer input. Mm-hmm. You know, I can tell another story about that in a minute. But I said to this teacher, I said, would you ever move the clothespin of a kid who you knew had dyslexia because she wasn't reading as quickly as the other? She didn't complete her work on time. She said, no, I would never do that. Right. I said, why? She said, because she can't help it. Mm-hmm. And I said, why is it any different if it's behavioral, social, emotional? Right. So I think the other piece of this too is that, you know, even kids who are neurotypical and they decide to do behaviors and they're in a receptive state in the moment and they've decided to do something that's mean to another kid. Like, so, you know, there are going to be moments where kids have choices, even in those moments to throw a random consequence, like a detention is I think the dumbest thing in the world, because, you know, if you're not looking at why did that kid decide to say something mean, what was that about for that kid? What was 
is the motivation behind that? If you don't ever get to that, the behaviors are going to continue. And things like detention or suspensions and things like that, they don't do anything to build skills. And honestly, I'm a big believer in high expectations and really firm boundaries along with connection. Mm -hmm. And I think I really want kids to actually work harder when it comes to discipline. So instead of saying, like, here's an example at a school, if you don't wear the uniform, if you have dress code violations, then at the end of the year, when all the other kids have free dress, you have to keep wearing your uniform. Well, that's dumb, first of all, because it's just punitive. It's kind of like the modern day version of the dunce cap, because it's at the end of the year. It's not at all right. tied to change right. behavior during your beha- the year. Yeah, during uh-huh. Yeah, but how about instead we make that kid practice using their middle prefrontal cortex and say, look, every time you have a uniform violation, I have to, like, the school has this rule, I have to write up this whole form about it, and that takes time away from other things I need to be doing. So do you have any ideas for when that happens for how you can help me get that time back? Is there something you could do to help me get some of those minutes back? Is there a way you could, you know, volunteer for me for some time or something like that? And then I would also say to the kid, look, this, these violations keep happening. And so what should we do to make it so that you remember when before you're walking out the door, what you need to do a checklist for. Let's make a checklist together and then let's laminate it and let's put it by your front door. Mm-hmm. You know, so really, mm-hmm. so you're setting the kid up for success and basically giving them some really good executive function by asking them to think through the steps, make a list, you know. So it's, I really think we should be asking kids to be more problem solvers and come up with solutions right. and enact those. Yeah so that we're more proactively involved in the practice of better skills. Well, and that happens, I think, so much easier when you have those connections, like you said. And in that example, I just kept thinking, when this teacher is moving it from one, the clothespin from you know one to the other, it's like she's not doing anything different after the first to the second. So right. like, there's no incentive for the student to change their behavior or... Like, I would expect there to be, you know, some teaching involved or, you know, some connection there where the student is learning, okay, well, this is, or the conversation of, you know, why do they do it the first time? How can we prevent it from happening the second time? If it's, you know, it's like the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. That's kind of what we're doing. I don't know how you would expect the student not to have it move a second time once it's moved once. Right. And why not make the kid... You know, really, the functions of the middle prefrontal cortex, which is the frontmost part of our frontal lobes, and it's not done developing until the mid to late 20s, you know, and this part of the brain does things like empathy, insight, regulating the body, regulating emotions, sound decision making, response flexibility, you know, all of these social and emotional mental health, executive oh, executive functions on that list, all of these different things that are there, the more reps that part of the brain gets, the more practice, like lifting a muscle, like lifting a weight, the more reps they get, the more that the brain builds. And so this is the kind of the point and purpose of why we think about social and emotional learning and social and emotional curriculum is to give kids more reps of being able to exercise that part of the brain. You know, mindfulness gets activated during that time part of the brain too. So when this kid has these repeated behaviors, what I would want to do is start helping him practice, you know, the regulating his body and regulating his emotions and making sound decisions and having insight. And then how can he make things right for his friend once he's, you know, broken their pencil again? But I think in 
that moment, I would say, I'd make sure he's in a regulated state. And I would say, hey, I'm noticing, I pick one behavior. I'm noticing this, you know, that you're really in your friend's space a lot. I wonder what we could do about that. Do you have any ideas? Let's storm together. And then have the kid come up with a couple of things. Say, hey, let's try that today and see how it works. And let's check in again at the end of the day. I know this takes a lot of time. And parents and teachers are like, I don't have time to do that. Mm-hmm. But actually, you spend so much more time in the battle. Right. Then, you know, take a few minutes at the end of the day or, you know, during a little break time or whatever. It's worth it's it to worth take the time it. for sure. For them, long term, it, long term, you're going to spend exactly. less time disciplining. Yeah, exactly. Tina, you have such a, an insightful view, and I'm sure it's through all the research that you've done. And I know that you have kind of talked about some of the books. If parents kind of want to get more information, where can they find you? Can you tell us a little bit about your upcoming books that are coming out? Yeah. Well, I actually have two coming out this year. One is coming out in January of 2020, so right around the time this is playing. I'm so excited about this book. It's called The Power of Showing Up how parental presence shapes our children's brains and minds. And I'm so excited about this book because it is based on, it's really the book I've wanted to write even before Whole Brain Child, which I'm so proud of that book too. (laughs) But The Power of Showing Up is based on decades and decades of research that show that there is really one thing that is the best predictor for how well kids turn out on everything we measure them on. So as parents who think we have to do everything for our child and we have to give them mm-hmm. all these things, you know, this like a, we can actually relax. There's one we need to do. Or for the parents who are really distracted and checked out to be like, hey, here's one thing that would be really great for you to do as a parent. And that is to provide kids with secure attachment. And attachment is an inborn mammal instinct that's basically like when you are in a state of distress, you're terrified, you're in physical pain, you're emotional pain, you run to someone, your attachment figure, who will help you survive and be okay again. That's what attachment is. So you're a chimp in the jungle, you hear a scary panther growl, (laughs) you run to a grown-up chimp who is a safe person for you, and they help you be safe. That's really what attachment is. And it gets most activated when we are in distress. So the way Dan and I like to talk about how do we provide secure attachment to our kids? If it's the best predictor for how they turn out, how do we do that? And so we talk about the four S's, helping kids feel safe, seen, soothed. So if we help them feel safe, we're going to protect you and keep you safe. And I'm not going to do harm to you. If they feel seen, like I get you are, they feel felt by us. They feel Mm -hmm. understood. Like we get them. And then soothed, like I'm here, you're safe. I'm with you. I'm going to help you here. When they have repeated, not perfect, thank goodness, but repeated enough experiences of feeling safe, seen and soothed, their brain actually wires for the fourth S to be secure Mm -hmm. that if they have a need, someone will see it and show up for them. And that actually gets transferred as obviously with parents, but then they choose friends and mates mm. who will be people who help them feel safe, seen, and soothed, and then they know will show up for them. And then they become those kinds of parents. And the good news is the best predictor for how well we're able to provide secure attachment or the four S's to our own kids is not whether or not 
we had it ourselves growing up, it's great because 40% of the population doesn't have secure attachment with their own mm-hmm, parents. Right. They may have it with a grandparent or someone else. But the best predictor for us being able to do that is that we've reflected on our own experiences. I've been able to understand and create a coherent narrative about what our parents did for us and what they didn't do and what we missed out on. And so what this book does is it walks through the four S's with really practical strategies. Like in the safe chapter, one of the takeaways is repair, repair, repair. So if you yell at your kids or you're, you know, you yank their arm a little too hard or you kind of scare them where they don't feel safe in the moment, you know, because we can yell, we can just, we need to repair with our kids right. and that helps them feel safe again. And so there's some really practical strategies. So I'm really excited about that book, The Power of Showing Up. And then later in the year, I'll have a book out called The Bottom Line for Baby. And it's this book where, you know, you guys know this, where you're trying to make a decision about something like, can the baby sit in the bed with me? Can I have a glass of wine? Should Mm -hmm. I circumcise my kid? Mm -hmm. You know, all these questions we have. And you read one thing online and you're like, yeah, that sounds really compelling. And then you read an article that tells you completely the opposite. Then that feels kind of compelling too. Or your mother-in-law and your best friend have completely Mm -hmm. different advice. Exactly. So what this book is, is the 65 most kind of hot topics that we wrestle with that we have to make decisions about where there's really conflicting advice. And it basically lays out the two main perspectives. It's done like A to Z alphabetical. So you can just flip to like breastfeeding and alcohol or circumcision or whatever it is. And then it says, here's what the science says. And I've looked at all Mm. the meta-analyses and the most current research and given kind of a summary of the current research. And then there's a bottom line. So you can say, here's what the science says. You know, absolutely, you should not spank your infant. You know, the research is really clear about that. And then in other cases to say, this is a values question. This is really up mm-hmm. to you. And mm-hmm. here are some things to think about. So I'm excited That's about great. that one as well. Oh That's man, great. that one's going to be amazing because <laughs> what's so interesting is that the science does, or the research, I should say, um, and not necessarily the evidence-based, but, you know, what a mom that had a kiddo 10 years ago is even now, like, you don't do that anymore. Like, for instance, I remember my mom when Blair's umbilical cord that, you know, now it's like, just leave it alone. Don't do anything. Just like clean it kind of, but not. And my mom's like, well, back in the day we used alcohol. And like, I can't tell you how many, like even there was a lactation specialist that was like, oh, we'll just put like alcohol on it. And I was just like dying inside because I was just like, you're not supposed to do that. What are you, you know? And so this (laughs) is great because I like to know the why of things. It helps me Me kind of, yeah. And I love that that's your job. Like in the law, like a man and I can take, you know, the time to research and things like that. But for you, I would just love to have your job because, you know, being able to read all the research and then seeing the practical effects. And I like that value component that you'll put in that book. I can't wait. Yeah. I, mean, I got to get that one. Already. <laughs> I'm excited. And in some of the passages, I actually leave a personal note and I tell a hilarious story or something about oh, that's like, awesome. what's so hard for me. And it's the book I wanted when I was first having babies. And, yeah. you know, my kids are older now. And so I've actually, um, the manuscript has gone out to about 75 people, some of them specific researchers or or specialists in on a specific subject, but also to a ton of new parents and expecting parents. And because there's stuff that's out now that I didn't, I'm like, what even is that? Like there's this whole thing called like graduated weaning, which is actually not at all related to breastfeeding. I forget what it's called. I'm not calling it the right thing. I'm blanking on it right now, but it's where you start, you don't, you skip baby food and you kind of go straight from nursing to like. Oh, I definitely saw that. 
everywhere while we were making that transition. And I was like, okay. And so it's like, yeah, you just start right away. And it's just like, babies are just already, you know, you make it, you know, mushy. And and I'm like, oh, cool. All right. We skipped Gerber. What? Like, yeah. I know. So yeah, there were some topics I had to be like, what is that? Because, you know, I needed to be on the cutting edge of, you know, what parents. I think it's self-led weeding or something like that. It is. Yep. Yeah. Something like that. Anyway. That's crazy. If people want to find me. So, you know, I've been on a lot of podcasts and two are and I could talk to you two all day long. Yes. Oh, uh, there's so much. We're going to have to have you back yeah, on we're, because we're gonna, like, we didn't even like, scratch it. the surface yeah. on yeah. all oh, the things we'd love, love to talk to you about. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to do another one with you all. And you know, maybe we can do more going, you know, I think we were supposed to talk about the power of showing up, but we actually mm-hmm. talked about so much other stuff. Actually, <laughs> yeah. We were talking about discipline. So yeah, maybe we can do another one about the power of showing up. I think absolutely. the other thing I want to say about that, and then we, I'll do a final resource and then we can part ways, even though it'll be sad is that you know I think for me the four s's like every school I'm ever at every audience I ever talk to no matter if they're clinicians or they're teachers or their parents or whoever they are businesses I actually talk about this the four s's you know I don't know about y'all but as a parent as a mental health professional as a school counselor as a spouse (laughs) all of these things there are lots of times where you know, I might have a sense of what I should do, but I'm not sure it's the right thing to do, mm-hmm. or I don't know what to do, or like, mm-hmm. especially, you know, when your kids are teenagers and you're like, how am I supposed to handle this? How am right. I supposed to handle right. it that my kids snuck out or that they were drinking alcohol or, you know, they did something that feels really scary. What do mm-hmm. I do? And for me, the four S is knowing that it's the best predictor for how well kids turn out, but it's also the repeated experiences of those four S's build the middle prefrontal cortex so Mm. that they do have all the social and emotional intelligence, all the things that are there for academic success, but also the foundation for mental health. You know, Mm -hmm. kids are physically safer than they've ever been, but socially and emotionally, you know, we kids are have we have more anxiety, depression, suicidality than absolutely ever seen. And I think we've got to build these middle prefrontal cortices. And the one of the best things to do that Mindfulness is hugely helpful, but relationships where kids feel safe, seen, so secure attachment builds that part of the brain. So I see the four S's like there may be a particular behavior, a particular circumstance, and I can always think of that particular behavior circumstance as the back burner. I've got to deal with it. I've got, mm-hmm. you know, it's got to be mm-hmm. a pot. I've got to stir that pot, figure out what to do with that pot. But front burner is always the four S's. How can I show up in this moment and help this other person feel safe, seen, soothed? Mm-hmm. And there may be moments that I'm like, you know what? I'm really mad right now. And I need someone who's going to show up for me. I need the four mm-hmm. S's right now. Mm-hmm. And I need people in my life who do that for me so that I have the reserves to do that for my kids. And it's not mm. always easy. It's a simple idea, but it's not easy. But the more we do it, the more reps we get where, we, you know, we help our kids feel safe and like connected to them. It can help so much. You know, yeah. my kid, like I often tell a story about a time my son hit his brother and I was like, my instinct was to be like, why in the world would you hit your mm-hmm. brother? You know, I'd start yelling, but holding this in mind, knowing that, you know, he was in the red zone and he, when kids are in emotional distress, it's very stressful. And it's like being physically in pain in terms mm-hmm. of how it looks mm-hmm. in the brain. So to be able to come to him and go, okay, I'm going to start with the four S's and start with connection. And I'm like, oh buddy, you're so mad. 
come here? What happened? And I comfort him. Then he gets back into this calm state and then we can address the behavior and we can talk about it. Mm. Or, you know, when my kid did something safe, unsafe as a teenager, I'm not going to say specifically because I want to protect my kid's privacy, but basically, you know, I was scared. I was mad. And what I ended up saying to him is instead of yelling, waited till I was calm. And I said, my job number one is to keep you safe. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to do things that are not keeping yourself safe, Mm -hmm. then I'm going to step in to make sure you're safe. Mm, Right. So that means the reins are coming in. You've had some freedom, but that freedom is being retracted, not as a punishment, but because I'm going to keep you safe. And I think then that just, it's such a different experience. You know, instead of my kid being really reactive, you're so, you're so ridiculous. You don't Mm -hmm. understand anything. Mm -hmm. There's this connection and this intimacy that comes in that moment, you know, where he's like, God, they love me. Like they want to keep me safe. And instead of it just being adversarial, it's connecting. And I think it's beautiful. And I think it, I don't know. I just think it's the guiding light. These four S's are like my beacon of light that guide me no matter what is happening for myself and for everyone I'm in relationship with. It works on on every level. And yeah, in every relationship and in a world where we seemingly are just so connected, right, with Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat, we are, I think, the loneliest population that's ever existed. And going back to the core of those four S's, I think is an excellent place for people to start with, especially with their kiddos. But you can pick it up right now with your partner, with Absolutely. your, you know, with all the people in your life. And that's hopeful. And yeah. I think I want to end there because yeah, that was yeah, that beautifully was wonderful. said. <laughs> well, we'll figure out a way to get you back on soon and we'll dive into all these other amazing topics and we want to thank you so much for being on today and i know our listeners are just gonna enjoy the conversation thank you so much and people can find me at tinabryson.com and there's all kinds of articles and links to all kinds of things on there so that's a good way to find me yes check her out we'll add that to the show notes and all the information to keep you in touch but uh, tina it was a pleasure thank you so much bye-bye thank you Thank you.